This is the business of sports. The International Olympic Committee is facing a crisis. Which sport would you point to and say, put your money here? Where the money is flowing inside sports around the globe. As NASCAR's business engine lost some horsepower. Now I'm paying 5 or 10% what I used to pay to buy the whole team. Michael Barr. Nothing like a cheap hot dog, which is what you should get. Scott Soshnick. How do you put your brand outside of the United States? How do you capture fans around the world? Bloomberg Business of Sports on Bloomberg Radio. Over the next hour, we will explore the big money issues in the world of sports. And we will talk to some of the biggest players in the industry. Today, just in time for the Stanley Cup Finals, it's National Hockey League Commissioner Gary Bettman. For us, everything starts with the game on the ice and then how we bring it to our fans. You know, if you do all that right and you give your fans a great experience, the revenue will flow. We will have more on our interview with Gary Bettman in a few minutes. But first, let's talk about some of the big business of sports stories of the week. And Scott, let's begin with the battle for the Miami Marlins. Jeb Bush is no longer pursuing the club. Here's Marlins president David Sampson earlier this season. It's a complicated, long process to do any transaction like this. And there's not a guarantee that a transaction will happen. Uh, but but for, for purposes of this process, it's just not right to confirm names or deny names. Scott, you broke the story from Bloomberg. What's the very latest? Well, the key part of that sentence that he just uttered there, that little speech, was that a transaction might not happen. From all the sports bankers that I'm talking to, that's where they're betting, that this transaction will not happen. Jeb Bush has pulled out. Derek Jeter wanted full control of the baseball and business side of the franchises within three years. Well, and everybody else said no. How much is he putting up in the first place? Well, we don't know Derek exactly Jeter. how much, but we do know that it will not be as much as the limited partners yeah. investors. I'll tell you that. And let's just say billionaire investors aren't used to putting all their capital at work and having somebody else run the show. Listen, I have total respect for the captain, what he did on the field, and, and I admire him as a person. But how can you set up in the negotiations, I want total control in about three years? Well... There's so many things that went wrong with this. And that, that's one. David Sampson and Jeff Lurie didn't use an investment banker. That might have helped the process. Derek Jeter and Jeb Bush didn't have their agreement straightened out ahead of time. They didn't have their limited partner money signed on ahead of time. They made a bid without the money. That's a big problem. Now, Tag Romney is sitting back. We know he was a bidder. He's sitting back now with only one confirmed bidder out there. Maybe he can bring the number down. It's how badly does he want the franchise. And we're talking about eight personalities. We're talking about a person who ran for president of the United States, Jeb Bush. I'm sure Jeb Bush is not going to say the former governor of Florida, okay, Derek, whatever you want and forget about me. Well, we already know. He said no. He's like, I'm out. Uh, he, we didn't know how much money he was putting in. Maybe it was going to be of 10, 20 million, whatever it is. Neither of the so-called general partners, and those are the guys who usually run things, was going to put in as much money as the investors, but they still wanted control. And then for Derek to want control of not only baseball operations, we know he knows baseball, but to want control of the business side of the franchise, that was the last straw for Bush. And he said, I'm, I'm going elsewhere. Another story we are following, Manchester United scores. Against Fabianski, Rooney, corners you like, in the corner, and United lead... Right on the halftime whistle. United won Swansea nil. That audio clip was courtesy of Manchester United. Scott, 
Manchester United really has been scoring more off the field than on it. The team has fewer Premier League wins than in any season since the competition started in 1992. Yeah, Mike, you know, though, it's a different story when it comes to the wallet. Accounting firm KPMG says the English club increased its value to $3.5 billion. And this is a sign, folks, in case you're not familiar with soccer, on how important and popular the sport is. There's a lot of coin out there when it comes to soccer. Yeah, uh, my guess would be, and bankers say this as well, if you looked at Real Madrid and you looked at Barcelona, right behind this time, right behind Man U, if you look at the television contract, particularly in the U.S., they have a B-in television deal. I haven't seen a La Liga game here. It's not easy. The EPL, though, I mean, they have six of the top 10 teams. There's a reason. They are generating mega media money outside their home markets, particularly the United States. When La Liga begins to do that, and we know that Barcelona is looking to extend the brand here, they're coming this summer to play against Real Madrid, to play against Juventus. These numbers are going to continue to soar. And lastly, the global battle for the Olympic Games. All right, we know who's involved, Michael. We have Paris and L.A., the IOC, however, seems to be leaning towards giving the 2024 Olympics to Paris and moving 2028 to L.A. We know Paris has said, we're not interested in 2028. We don't want the second one. L.A. hasn't been that strong and definitive and we don't want it, but they've made clear they want 2024. So this is setting up a very interesting situation for the IOC, which is lacking bidders nowadays anyway. What do they do with these two games when both cities want the same one, 2024? Two points here. First of all, only two major cities are in play because basically many other cities said, hey, if we put in a bid for the Olympics, it's going to cost us a lot of money. Let's look at Rio. Everybody's looking at Rio. The white elephants, all the infrastructure problems, the, the amount of money spent. The basis of the L.A. bid is that we've got it all here. All the buildings are ready to go. We have UCLA, we have the Coliseum, we have the new facility coming for the Rams and the Chargers. We don't have to spend that much money. The Pittsburgh Penguins are looking to make it two straight Stanley Cups. They currently lead the best of seven game series against Nashville. Yeah, Sid, no longer a kid, but what better time to talk to the man who runs the league, National Hockey League Commissioner Gary Bettman. Gary, before we talk about the state of the league, I want to talk about the Olympics. I simply want you to explain the economics of not going to the games. Frankly, it's not an economic decision. Okay. Uh, I, think we, I think we've been very clear. We're not anti-Olympics. We're anti-disruption to the season. It has a severe impact on our season. It exposes players, not just those who go to the Olympics, to a greater risk of injury. It affects our competitive balance, the competitiveness in our season. Uh, and it causes us to simply disappear for three weeks at a very important time where there's no football, there's no baseball, uh, and we're heading for the stretch run to the playoffs. It's a, it's a rather, to say the least, inconvenient time for us to be shutting down and disappearing. Yeah, it seems that people, fans, even they just don't seem to want to understand that even owners, it doesn't really appeal to them to shut down their season, to stop the momentum, and you really do fall off the radar screen. Uh, exactly. And that's why the teams, I think, have had uh, fatigue on the entire subject, having gone to five Olympics. I think the door wound up getting open wider when about a year and a half ago, the International Olympic Committee said that they 
uh, we're no longer going to pay the expenses attendant to the players playing, which is something they had been paying for the previous five Olympics. And for those teams that were on the fence, I think this pushed them over the fence because they're saying if the IOC and the International Ice Hockey Federation don't value our participation enough to pay the expenses, and we're talking about insurance and transportation and accommodations for players and players' family, if they're not prepared to pay for that, why are we disrupting our season? Um, and in fact, I, I was on a panel uh, with Adam Silver about a month ago at the Milken Conference, and I asked him in front of the audience, would the NBA ever consider shutting down to go to the Olympics? His, his answer, before I could finish getting it out, was absolutely not. <laughs> but, and, and yet, some will say, but the players want to do it. <laughs> I mean, we, we hear that well, a lot. But, by the way, I, I, I understand that, and that's one of the reasons I asked the IOC if we could switch to the summer. And their answer to that was absolutely not. What are the factors that would perhaps make it palatable? What makes a shutdown worthwhile? Is it location of Olympics? Is it time? Uh, Would it be those payments? You know what? I think we've we've exhausted this topic. Uh, At the end of the day, we've concluded the clubs have that it makes no sense to go it's 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 never been subject to negotiation we weren't looking to for them to give us anything uh the only insight i can give you on that and then we should probably move on uh relates more to the framework as to how the position got set up um uh bill daly actually showed me his notes for the last 18 months and every single meeting that I had on this subject, either with the IOC or the IIHF or the Players Association, I was very clear saying we don't believe that the clubs have any longer an appetite to shut down the season to go to the Olympics. Um, but that if somebody has something you want me to take back to the board that somehow might change their mind or cause them to think about it, I'll be happy to be the messenger. Uh, And in fact, nothing transpired in that regard at all, which was fine, because I knew where the clubs were and how they felt. What was interesting is, as you know, we conducted a World Cup uh, last September, which was universally acclaimed as perhaps the best competition internationally from a hockey standpoint that anybody had ever seen. And we had been in discussions with the Players Association because we do these things together uh, over the possibility of doing the next one. And the notion was doing them every four years might make some sense. And we had a meeting last November. And the Players Association said, okay, let's debrief and let's get ready to plan out a framework for 2020. And I said, that sounds great, but there's one issue that we have to address. Not about doing a World Cup, but doing a World Cup in 2020. And and that issue was we and the Players Association each have a reopener where you have to provide notice in September of 2019 reopener of the collective bargaining agreement to be effective for September of 2020. And I said to the Players Association, listen, I haven't discussed this with my constituents, and I'm sure you haven't, but if we're going to plan a World Cup for 2020, we need to each consider waiving our reopeners, because in 2004, we were in the same position where we were negotiating 
or attempting to negotiate a new CBA uh, in the year leading up to that World Cup. And as soon as the World Cup was over, there was no collective bargaining agreement, and, and we had a work stoppage. said, it was a disaster. We don't want to be in that position. That doesn't mean we don't have to do a World Cup, but if we're going to not waive our reopeners, we should pick a different year. Uh, and there was a discussion about international competition and an international calendar. And in the course of that discussion, I said, you know, I'm going to throw out a crazy idea. It's not a demand. I'm not negotiating. I don't even know if the clubs would be interested in this. But if we both gave up our reopeners and we extended the CBA for three years, then you could talk about labor peace for nine years, a robust international calendar, which would include two Olympics, two World Cups, two what we're calling Ryder Cups, and a whole host of other activities on a predictable schedule. I said, I said if I took that to the owners, maybe that would resonate in terms of a good reason to do the Olympics. Uh, and that is something, to make a long story short, or a short story long, that didn't resonate with the union whatsoever. But I bet it would have resonated with the business partners. Well, probably. But that's why we were having that discussion. And ultimately what happened, and I don't know how it, how it happened, but it got portrayed in the media that I was demanding a three-year extension in return for going to Chang, which wasn't the case. This was a broader conversation. It wasn't a demand because actually when it got public, because I guess the union was discussing it with a number of the players, a number of owners called me and said, what are you doing? Gary, out of all the four major sports, it's my opinion that hockey is the best one to see live. I like that opinion a lot. Uh, we believe we have the best in-person experience uh, in terms of pace of play, which is an issue in some of the other sports, the amount of time our game takes and the amount of action that there is in that time frame. Nothing is comparable. You look at our playoffs and even our regular season because we have extraordinary competitive balance. Historically, uh, we got a less than favorable rap on television under old analog TV because if, if you weren't a real fan, you might have not been able to follow the game as well. But with the advent of HD TV and the clarity and the digital sound and most importantly the wide aspect ratio, we now bring home much more of the in-person experience and the game is really terrific to watch on television now uh... and but but you're right there we believe there's nothing comparable to being at an nhl game but the other part of it is we, we have continuous play sometimes for six seven eight minutes which is extraordinary to watch watching players substitute on the fly uh... is is terrific and exciting and fun to watch but again what, what HDTV represents, and, and it goes to what you and I have been discussing on the white aspect ratio, you can actually see plays develop now. It's not Analog TV was really focused on the puck carrier, and you really didn't see what was going on around him. Um, but now you get to see more of what the in-person experience is, and it's made a huge difference because I think the research says on a percentage basis we've had over the last decade uh, the most growth in audience on television of all the major sports. 
We are chatting with NHL Commissioner Gary Bettman. And uh, Gary, I'm a little confused. What's that television thing you keep speaking about? I, people watch sports on television? <laughs> uh, well, they, they still do. Oh, okay. uh, but, but, but as you know, we also stream as part of our relationship with BAM Tech. Uh, and we want to make sure that our fans can get access to our game access to as much content as they want, whether it's shoulder programming or data points or statistics, uh, on every platform imaginable. But our streaming, uh, BAM Tech has done an extraordinary job with our app, uh, NHL.TV, and uh, we've got record uh, touch points with our fans. I think over 400 million people have, have used our app. And so we feel that all of the evolution in technology has really brought us to a place where we can touch more of our fans with more content than ever before. Now, the other sports leagues will say the same thing, but going back to the other part of our discussion, we were probably underserved relative to the other three majors on traditional television. Now we have an opportunity to serve more fans in more ways better than ever before. And you also have a demographic that skews younger than, I'll, I mean, I'll say, you don't yeah. have to, let's say baseball. I mean, that's why they're working on pace of play issues. They have a difficult time reaching millennials. But hockey on an iPad, on a phone, you have a deal with Twitter as well. I mean, this is scalable media. This is how you can reach the world. There's a finite number of seats in an arena every night. But to reach the world with digital capabilities, I mean, this, these are revenue possibilities. Well, it's revenue, but it's also serving your fan base and growing your fan base. Uh, for us, everything starts with the game on the ice and then how we bring it to our fans. You know, if you do all that right and you give your fans a great experience, the revenue will flow. What, what we try to represent is authenticity, entertainment, excitement, skill and speed and marvelous athletes. Our, our players are just terrific, not only on the ice, but how they represent the game and all the things they do in the community. And that's all part of what you want to give a fan base. And as you said, yes, they're younger, perhaps the youngest in all sports. Uh, our fans tend to be the best educated and the most tech savvy, and perhaps most important, the most avid. What town, which town do you think is one of the, the greatest and they're all great sports towns, but in terms of the, I should add that in there, but the, some of the greatest hockey towns that you've ever seen in your life. Can you name well, some? You have children and yeah. you love them all the same? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the, uh, we, we, our, we play in the regular season to roughly 95% of capacity and over 100% of capacity in the playoffs, we have, whether it's original six teams or the second six teams or, or even the newest expansion teams, uh, our fans have just gravitated to those teams. And you take a city like Nashville, which is in the Stanley Cup final, that building is as loud as any building in the league. They've developed their own traditions and customs for watching the game and having chance. Uh, I, I am so pleased that we have such a vibrant and involved and engaged fan base that nowhere, wherever you go to a game, you get a great experience and you get caught up in the enthusiasm. Gary, Nashville defenseman P.J. Subban really has a chance to take the center stage in the Stanley Cup Finals and be a star.
He's a great guy, and he, he's all in emotionally, energetically. He's a terrific player. Uh, he, he uses social media a lot, uh, and it's fun to watch him, and uh, they love him in Nashville. Uh, they absolutely adore him, and I think he's having fun with the game, and that's most important. But again, our players, in a game that represents the ultimate team concept, you know, they tend to, if you will, sublimate themselves to the team as a whole, but it's nice on occasion to see a player break out, show a little more of the personality, and have success doing it. Okay, your broadcast deal expires, I think, in 2021 with NBC? It has four years to go. I don't have the calendar in okay. front of me, but okay. after this, there are four more seasons. Right. It's, a lot of deals are expiring around that time in the pro sports world, and we're not really sure what the landscape's going to look like. Can, can you tell me what you're looking at, what metrics you look at, how you're trying to read a world in which Amazon is now showing the NFL, in which you're on Twitter, in which Facebook may is showing live sports, and maybe Google and Apple jump in. How do you navigate that world? Well, first of all, the media deal you're referring to is our deal with NBC, and NBC has been a fabulous partner. Uh, and in fact, the deal, and, and even though we're in our 100th year celebrating our centennial, this deal we have with NBC is the first time that every game of the Stanley Cup playoffs is on national television. And they do such a great job covering and producing the games. Uh, We love the relationship. We also have a deal, as you know, with about nine years to go, I think, in Canada with Rogers, and they're doing an equally spectacular job. But you're focused on what happens in four years. Well, we, we have to do two things, and it's something I alluded to before. The game has to be great. What takes place on the ice has to be competitive. We have extraordinary competitive balance. It has to be entertaining and skillful. And you have to be reaching out to your fans and providing them content in all the ways they want to consume it. So what we have to do is make the content is good, make sure it's good uh, and it's compelling. And then how you distribute it will be a function as to what evolves in this ever-changing digital technology landscape. And so it's important to have relationships. I don't think the networks are going away anytime soon, if ever, because I think most people still like to sit at home or in large groups at at a restaurant or a bar and watch uh, sporting events on a big screen, particularly hockey. But you want to be able to service your fans, particularly your millennials and Gen Zs, in the ways that they're comfortable in consuming it. And it means you've got to stay current on what's going on and what's evolving. But it all starts with the content. That's more important in the first instance than how you distribute it. That will take care of itself. You have to have valuable content. No, no, the NFL is asking its team to provide more content to the league office than ever before. That's behind the scenes. You know what fans want. They want to see in the locker room what goes on. They want to see what a referee is discussing. And that's why we've been doing all-access shows uh, for the last few years, starting with the road to the Winter Classic. Uh, We're doing it in the Stanley Cup final. Uh, Players and officials and coaches are wearing mics. We're getting access to to locker rooms. The officials are wearing mics. Uh, And we're taking people behind the scenes because that's what they want. And so we've been, I think, uh, on on the forefront of that. Uh, Showtime is going to have... Uh, terrific coverage of the all-access programming for the Stanley Cup Final. Uh, And that's something that all of us in sports have to do. It's all, again, about having compelling 
content. And I thank you as my hockey playing seven year old learned a few <laughs> colorful words from those coaches inside the locker room <laughs> on, on those shows. I, you're telling me you never heard those at home from you on a business call? Shame on you. <laughs> <laughs> no, o- only in talks with baseball and football. That's it. I got it. Some critics say that the regular season is too watered down. Now, for me, we can have the whole thing go twelve months, and and we can and and play every day. But it, some say that it is watered down. How do you answer those critics? Uh, the sum is a very small group uh, these days. Uh, when you look at our regular season and the race to the playoffs, and this obviously is a factor in what went into the Olympic decision. Uh, we have teams that are making the playoffs or missing it by one or two points. We actually had seven teams in the playoffs this year that weren't in the playoffs last year. And I think something like nine out of the last 11 years, the turnover has been at least five. Uh, that tells you that not only is is it tough to win, the competitiveness is so extraordinary that, that a team – you know, can go from the bottom of the pile into the playoffs. We have a, a number eight team uh, competing in the Stanley Cup final. And so you you have a regular season where every point, every game matters. And in fact, as we discussed before, we play to about 95% capacity in the regular season. So like you, uh, our fans can't get enough of it. All right, Gary, let me bring it local for our listeners here in New York. You know I've been following the Islanders situation pretty closely. What is your take on whether they can stay at Barclays or where they might end up? We all know that they're going to submit uh, to the RFP at Belmont. But your thoughts on what happened at Barclays and ultimately where the team will play, because that's what the fans want to know. Well, first of all, uh, it was clear that the Nassau Coliseum was past the due date by many, many years. As someone who took his first trip there in 1977, I will say, yes, that is true. By the way, I had my first trip there then, and then I had many trips there in the last couple of years, and they they couldn't stay there anymore. And in fact, uh, on a tour, I must have gone on five or six years previous to that, seeing the ice-making plan. They, I don't even know where they were getting parts from to keep it going. Really. Uh, and so it was great that they had an opportunity to go to Barclays, which is a state-of-the-art facility, and would give fans a much better experience. Having said that, a little bit harder to get to, and the building was a little bit hard to get to if you live on Long Island in Nassau or Suffolk County. Um, but the building wasn't built for hockey. It was built for basketball, and that meant there were obstructed seats and things weren't centered in, under the roof and the scoreboard, and, and it raised some issues. Uh, Scott Malkin, who, who now is the principal owner of the Islanders, is committed not just to New York, as he frequently says, I didn't buy the Islanders, the New York Islanders, to move them somewhere. I bought a team to have in New York. And he's looking at all of the options available to the Islanders, including building a building, perhaps significantly closer to people on Long Island and Nassau and Suffolk County, and to make it hockey-centric, hockey-friendly, to give the fans and the team the right resources and experience. And so he is committed to that effort, and he's looking at his options. There was so much ballyhooed about when they went to Barclays, 25 years, ironclad, was that just an ill-conceived deal? I mean, it wasn't sold as a temporary home. It was well, This was the future home of the Islanders. 
I don't think at the time anybody thought it was temporary, and who knows what may unfold. Maybe it will turn out not to be temporary. Looking at your options is what is the responsible thing to do when you, when you have a major league team like the Islanders are. So they're, they're going to explore. Maybe, maybe they want to change the configuration and rebuild Barclays. I don't think that's the case, but I think ownership, Scott Malkin, is focusing, as he should, on what the best long-term possibilities are for the Islanders, wherever that may be. NHL players are some of the toughest players in any sport, which which brings up the point, you know, head trauma is, is something that all the sports are looking at in terms of concussions. Uh, how is the league now looking at that, and what other improvements are they looking at now? Well, first of all, we believe player safety is a vital area uh, that we need to focus on and it's not how we're now focusing on it we were the first sports league i believe in 1997 to begin studying head trauma doing it with our players association and our trainers and physicians uh... as the medicine and the science was evolving we've stayed on top of it we were the first sports league to have baseline testing we were the first sports league to have protocols for diagnosis and return to play decisions uh... we've changed the rules we've changed the environment we've changed the equipment uh... and and we were the first sports league, and I think we still are, to have a department of player safety. When we administer supplemental discipline, we do it with a video so people understand exactly what we're doing and why, what isn't, what isn't acceptable conduct. Uh, I think we've done a, a very fair job of educating the players and changing some of the culture of the game in terms of how certain hits are and are not made. So this is something that will continue to have our attention. And as the medicine continues to evolve and, and the medical community learns more and more about concussions, diagnosis, uh, how to treat them, uh, we're going to stay involved because where I started, what I just said is player safety is a vital concern of ours. Gary Bettman, thank you so much for taking some time and joining us. Great to be with you guys. Thank, thank you. you, Gary. Appreciate it, Gary. Well, Michael, let's finish up the program with one final story, a number we're focusing on today, and that number is 10 million. I got it. That's the lottery jackpot, which I'm aiming for tonight. Well, that might be your demographic, but this is about esports. <laughs> you know esports? Is that in your household, esports? Oh, the kids there, they know it. All right, well, this is about Riot Games, though. Riot Esports, it's their new venture. What they're doing is creating a league that is very similar to the NFL or the NBA. They're bringing structure for the first time to esports. You want a team? $10 million. See, this is where gaming, video gaming, has become just off the hook. It's like, what? what there's a college out there where they're actually scholarships More than for one. video it's games. Yeah. It's growing. For those who wonder whether this is a real thing, let us know that Madison Square Garden sold out its theater for an event. I mean, tens of thousands of people show up to watch other people play these games. This kind of money, by the way, if you want to put it in a pro sports measurement here, if we can make a comparison, like $10 million is what MLS was charging for a franchise in the early 2000s. That's not that long ago. This isn't a sport for the Leroy Jenkins out there. No, no, th but this is a real thing. They aggregate eyeballs. And you know if you can get people to watch, Turner's heavily invested in a league with IMG, if you can get people to watch, people will figure out how to monetize. 
by the way, if you know what I'm talking about with Leroy Jenkins, just go to YouTube. You know what I'm talking about if you want a big laugh. But anyway, I'll leave that there. If I want a big laugh, I'll watch you try and understand esports. Oh, there's the checkers. <laughs> anyway, this is Bloomberg Business of Sports on Bloomberg Radio around the world. We are here each and every week at the same time exploring the world of money and sports. I'm Mike Labar. And I'm Scott Soshnick. Thanks for joining us. Please tune in next week when we speak with Lakers owner Jeannie Buss.